This is the Seattle Astronomy Podcast, conversations about the cosmos with an emphasis on space and astronomy news of interest to amateur astronomy enthusiasts. I'm Greg Scheiderer, your host. I'm also the writer of the Seattle Astronomy blog at seattleastronomy.com. An exciting new exhibit titled Apollo is set to open May 20th at the Museum of Flight in Tequila, just south of the Seattle city limits. Today on the podcast, we talk with Jeff Nunn, adjunct curator for space history at the museum, about the upcoming exhibit. This is a remodel of our Apollo gallery, but it's an all-new exhibit. Um, The previous exhibit had been in place since 2007, so it's about 10 years old at this point. And... We had a a number of developments that uh, happened and let us know that it was time to to give things a a fresh look. Uh, Museums grow organically, and the same thing is actually happening right now at the Smithsonian. They're redoing their their space gallery, and as our museum has grown over the, the past 10 years, the previous space exhibit that was over there dealt with everything from the beginnings of modern rocketry all the way up through shuttle and a late or an early 2000s version of the future. And then we got the full fuselage trainer and built the Charles Simone Space Gallery and we shifted the shuttle story across the street. And so it was time to, to try and clarify the, the divide between uh, the early space race story and the shuttle era forward. And we did not have the, the room to get all of that in a single gallery and, and still do it justice, so we're going from uh, we're going to two galleries. Um, so so that happened, and then the museum also uh, built uh, the Alaska Airlines Aerospace Education Center, and that displaced one of our earlier space exhibits, which was called Rendezvous in Space, and that really told uh, the entire space story through the eyes of Apollo 12 astronaut Pete Conrad, Uh, but it dealt with his whole career all the way up to uh, the next great thing, which at the time when it was uh, opened was DCX, which uh, was one of the the last things that he he worked on back in the 90s. Uh, And so when that exhibit was displaced by the construction of the Alaska Airlines Aerospace Education Center, uh, one of our big goals for this exhibit was to really refocus the exhibit on that initial space race from the end of World War II up through the post-Apollo 1970s and to reintegrate a lot of these wonderful artifacts that we have from astronaut Pete Conrad. And then the, the third real catalyst to all of this was in 2015, in 2013, Bezos Expeditions brought up uh, several of the engine components from uh, the Apollo 7 and 5, several of the F-1 engines from the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, and they announced that if NASA agreed that they wanted some of those components to come here to the Museum of Flight. And so after a couple of years of restoration, at the end of 2015, those engine parts arrived. So we're trying to refocus on the Apollo story, reintegrate uh, Pete Conrad's artifacts and uh, showcase these amazing artifacts that we received uh, from NASA by way of Bezos Expeditions of these actual Apollo flown F1 engines. And a lot of that came together sort of serendipitously in that Pete Conrad was uh, the commander of Apollo 12. Uh, the museum's moon rock, which we've had for years, was recovered on Apollo 12. and 
the engine components we, we received, many of those also came from Apollo 12. So we developed this, you know, within this Apollo story, Apollo 12 is is a sort of through line uh, for the exhibit, which is one of the, the less told stories of, of uh, the space program. Interesting. Seattle must be the city of 12s for some. Yeah, well, and, and, that, and I've made, made that comment before, is that uh, the engine that we received from Bezos was the number three engine from Apollo 12, so uh, you can consider it the Russell Wilson engine. <laughs> so I was here when, when they, he officially presented those. Mm -hmm. It's just a mind-boggling story to me, just, just that they exist and oh. can be seen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was... The recovery effort was just a crazy, mind-boggling challenge. Uh, so the engines sank. They were half a kilometer deeper than the Titanic. They were about 14,000 feet uh, underwater, give or take, uh, you know, a few. And so that's if you, you know, on a sunny day here, you look out and you look at Mount Rainier. That's about the height of Mount Rainier underwater. And and whereas with Titanic, you've got this ship that's, you know, this massive ship that you're looking for. With the engines, you're looking for objects that are, if they were all together, 20 feet tall. So you're trying to find what is ultimately this very small object at depths far deeper than the Titanic. And it took years of effort, and it actually has some really uh, amazing local ties. So the, the recovery effort, there were actually two expeditions. The first one, uh, after a lot of the initial setup, launched in 2011, and that was actually trying to find the engines. And Bezos Expeditions was being very secretive about it, and we actually spoke with uh, David Kincannon, who, uh, who helped organize the expedition on, on uh, behalf of Be the Bezos uh, group, and he said that he actually posted pictures of treasure galleons all over the, the deck of the, the search ship in order to throw off the crew until they got out at sea. I mean, it sounds like, like something out of the, the age, you know, this sort of interesting, you know, necessary deception sounds like something out of the age of exploration where, yeah. where they wait till they get out at sea and then he switches out the, the images of these treasure galleons so that the crew all thinks they're going looking for, for you know, sunken Spanish doubloons and then he puts up the images of, of the, the Saturn V and the F1 around the, the sonar room. So that initial expedition to find the engines was actually run by a Stabbert Maritime here in Seattle and the ship they used was an old Cold War spy ship that was built at, uh, down in Tacoma. And so it was the, uh, the uh, Ocean Stalwart. It was the first in its class of the, the Stalwart uh, reconnaissance ships. And they equipped it with uh, the latest in Totoray sonar and went out and, and actually uh, worked a search pattern based on where they were able to figure the best estimate was for where the engines uh, ended up coming to rest. And once they found them, then it was, uh, then they had to identify, okay, which engines do we think came from Apollo 11? Because that was uh, Bezos Expedition's main goal, was to find the engines from Apollo 11. And they identified a number of the, their sort of highest priority targets, and then that took a, a, a couple of years, and then in 2013, they had to figure out, okay, how do we actually go and visit these targets? And so for that, there's only a couple of of vessels and groups in the world who can actually do heavy salvage from that deep underwater, and they ended up going 
uh, with a, a Norwegian uh, vessel uh, called the Seabed Worker, which is run by Swire Seabed, and uh, went out to actually recover the engine using a couple of ROVs and some really astounding heavy lift capability. Amazing. Yeah. Do you think it's fair to call those engines that kind of the centerpiece of the new exhibit? Uh, they are one of several centerpieces, and, and this is, uh, is one of the things is in, in all of our, our dis discussions is, is that everyone involved wants this exhibit to be about Apollo, both here at the museum and our external partners and external stakeholders. It's, and so the, the engines are, are definitely one of the, the several crown jewels in this exhibit. Uh, we also have Deke Slayton's astronaut pin, and then just recently, earlier this week, it was announced we are receiving on loan from Neil Armstrong's family a couple pieces of the original Wright Flyer that were carried to the moon by Neil Armstrong on Apollo 11. Wow. And so those are, and they're just little tiny bits, but it's the, the first airplane made it to the moon, and, and we're going to have a couple of those on display. So th there's going to be a, a, quite a few one-of-a-kind amazing artifacts in this exhibit. Cool. Now, you've been working on this for the better part of two years now, right? Yeah. Something I think, like that? Yeah, I think we really, I mean, honestly started to really get rolling and pretty much immediately after the Charles Simone Space Gallery finished up in 2014. So, and for a while it was, you know, Lots of other duties as assigned other projects that uh, but you know throughout kind of picking away at this and and uh, getting research going, starting to you know draft copy and and figure out what artifacts we want to want to display and uh, a big part of it was of course in two thousand and fourteen we knew the engines had been brought up, we knew that we had heard that one might be coming here, but that didn't get settled until the summer of 2015. So uh, as to exactly, you know, where they were going and when they were going to arrive. So, so in, in that time as you've been working on this, what, what are some of the amazing or hilarious or notable things that you've discovered and learned? So when it comes to amazing and notable and hilarious things, Apollo 12 is really a, a gold mine as, as far as uh, Apollo missions go. And so I'll, you know, can kind of reflect on a, a, a couple of those stories. So one of the objects that we've had since Rendezvous in Space, since this, uh, this exhibit that told the P. Conrad story, was this cap that he wore in quarantine after the mission. And the cap was a typical sort of navy cap with the scrambled eggs on the brim, and it said it had the initials for commander on the on the hat, and he was the commander of the mission. Uh, but Conrad had a propeller beanie added to the top of it, <laughs> and there are photos of him wearing it while he was in quarantine after the mission, and and. That hat is really sort of indicative of Pete's personality. He was, and the the mission is often described as, uh, you know, he and the, his other crewmates were all really good, really close friends, and it was often it's often described as, you know, three friends going on a camping trip or or something like that. Uh, another one of the which Conrad can't take credit for this happening, but it definitely uh, involved him, which is, is in our, uh, going to be on display, is we have his infamous cuff checklist. And do you know the, the story behind I, the Apollo 12 cuff checklist? I do not. So 
Apollo 12, uh, before they launched, the backup crew, uh, Dave Scott, uh, led by Dave Scott, decided to play a joke on uh, the members of Apollo 12, and they commissioned uh, a member of the, I don't know his official title, his name was Ernie Reyes, but he was one of the members of the closeout crew, and he, to draw cartoons in the cuff checklist of the, of the Apollo 12 crew, and so he drew all these these uh, cartoons with the astronauts, usually depicted as Snoopy from Charles Schultz's uh, comic. But he al he also went a step further, and they actually inserted some pictures of Playboy playmates into the 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 cuff checklist of uh, Pete Conrad and Albine, which they discovered after they were out walking on the moon. I think uh, they kind of ran into the first ones during their second EVA. And, and so all of a sudden they're flipping through their checklists as they're going through you know, their step-by-step their -step tasks. And, and all of a sudden there's a Playboy pinup uh, <laughs> right there inserted among the pages. And uh, so we have Conrad's checklist complete with all of the amendments uh, that is going to be on display, uh, which made a bit of a, uh, a challenge as to, okay, how do we tell this story in a way that's family friendly? Mm -hmm. And we ran into a couple options. Uh, we actually managed to find a photo of, an official NASA photo of Conrad on the moon with the checklist open to one of the, the pages. You can barely see it on his, on his wrist. And by kind of adjusting the light curves uh, as we're getting ready to reprint it, you can it allows you to see just enough of what it is without it becoming something that's going to cause a scandal. And so, and while we were doing that, we also discovered that Albine, who was on the moon with Pete, uh, became an artist after he left NASA, and he paints a lot and paint and his you know paints a lot of uh, uh, relating to his past career and. One of his paintings, titled Pete and Me, is taken from this photograph, and Albine has this sort of fuzzy sketch of this pinup on Pete Conrad's cuff checklist. And on his official sort of uh, gallery website, it mentions the cuff checklist, but it doesn't mention what's on it. And, it. and when you look at it, if you didn't know better, it looks like it might be some sort of lunar formation or, or the like. But, and it was in yeah, some right, ways. Right, in some ways. So... Uh, so there's all all these all sorts of these stories that you know both humorous but then also just incredible. The, you know the Apollo 12 mission was struck during launch was struck by lightning twice. So that engine and, and the lightning uh, when it struck it it uh, it was largely caused by the ionized gas cause you know basically turned the rocket into the the tallest lightning rod one could possibly think of and. So during launch, it caused this, this uh, a lot of their, their uh, electrical systems and the communication of their data to go offline. And there was this famous story about SCE to AUX where they're trying to figure out what's going on because they have all of their alarms going off. And then this one guy in mission control just happens to, to know the answer. And he says, try SCE to AUX. And then... And Conrad, you know, keeps mishearing him. He's like, "FCE to off? What, what is he talking about?" And then all of a sudden, Albine pipes up, "Wait, I know where that is!" And flips the the switch. And sure enough, it saves uh, you know saves them from having to abort, and they manage to survive the mission. So if you think about it, our F one engine survived 
a million and a half pounds of, of thrust and burning rocket fuel. It survived a strike by lightning, and then a, a plummet from from you know the edge of space down to smash into the ocean, and then 40 plus years on the bottom of the seabed. Those those engines have seen a lot. That is an artifact. Yes, yes, that is an artifact. We're talking with Jeff Nunn, adjunct curator for space history at the Museum of Flight, about the Apollo exhibit that opens May 20th. The moon landings were a pretty big deal for many of us who watched them on television. That's one of the things that we're really trying to capture is is just how much the space program interplayed with the context of what was going on at the time. And you know, the 60s were incredibly tumultuous. You had the Vietnam War, you had uh, Johnson's Great Society going on after, you know, you know, Kennedy was assassinated, then Lyndon Johnson took over the presidency. You had early on, you know, at the very beginnings of the space race, you had the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the, the Bay of Pigs invasion, and there's some folks who think that the, the Bay of Pigs invasion directly influenced Kennedy's timing as to when to announce the, the moon goal. And so there was all of this interplay and back and forth between the Cold War and the, and the, the space race and just what was going on in America. And, and, it, and the space race helped contribute to things like the environmental movement. Um, one of the, the things we highlight is Apollo 8 and the, the Earthrise photo, which some credit with helping to, to one of the several things that happened during the late 60s, early 70s that helped to uh, spur this focus on improving life here on Earth. Because for the first time, people were seeing the Earth as a whole without borders drawn on a map. And so that's really one of the big goals. And then the legacy of Apollo echoes all the way down to today. You know, I mentioned that, that Conrad ended up working on DCX. Well, a lot of the folks who are now building these reusable rockets that were actually flying uh, at Blue Origin and SpaceX and the like, many of them got their start on the DCX program mm -hmm. and are now uh, high up in, in these new commercial space companies. Uh, Deke Slayton actually launched the very first commercially funded rocket to uh, cross the Kármán line, Conestoga 1, and back at, you know, I think it was in the, the earlier mid-80s, so, you know, several decades before, you know, SpaceX was even a glimmer in anyone's eye. Yeah. So there's definitely this, this through line that has absolute resonance with today. It must be a great challenge for exhibit designers to come up with something that can tell this incredible story in, in fairly limited space. Yeah, that's that's a, a major challenge that we're we're faced with, and and the gallery that it's in is is not a particularly huge gallery. It's a, it's a couple thousand square feet, uh, and and one of the. Uh, the other uh, unique things that we had happen sort of late in the game is we had this opportunity we just couldn't pass up where uh, one of our trustees who worked for Aerojet Rocketdyne identified uh, an actual F-1 engine that was at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center that might be available for loan. And at the time, we had been talking about uh, including a 
fabricated mock-up of half of an engine to kind of provide a before picture. Well, now all of a sudden we have this real thing that we can potentially get, and we had to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we fit this 20-foot tall, 12-foot wide <laughs> additional F1 engine in the gallery? So now we, and we got it in there, and we had to figure out, okay, is... You know, a mock-up is going to be a lot lighter, but the actual engine, this thing weighs, I think the the main engine itself is something like 18,500 pounds. You know, we're, you're pushing 20,000 pounds. Is the floor even going to support it? And But we managed to, you know, through some just incredible feats of engineering, get this engine into the gallery. And so now we actually have a before engine and an after engine. Uh, in the after, of course, being the, the one that um, we received from Bezos Expeditions. NASA must have an incredible garage to be <laughs> storing all this stuff off in a corner somewhere. Well, and, and so this, this other engine uh, actually had some recent, and it has a, an interesting arc in its own history. Uh, it was originally part of the first stage for Apollo 16. But uh, during some of the, the static tests to qualify the, the first stage, there was a fire in one of the other engines which damaged this particular engine. So it was pulled off of the stage, it was refurbished, and in the meantime, some other engines had been reassigned uh, to that stage. So it you know, obviously never flew, but then it, NASA gave it on loan to the Air and Space Museum in DC. They never put it on display, it sat in storage for a long time. And then in 2013, when NASA started thinking about SLS, they realized we've got a new generation of, of uh, rocket engineers who are, you know, only really the only big engines they're familiar with are liquid oxygen hydrogen engines from the shuttle era. We might be going back to kerosene for SLS, so we need to get them familiar with how that works. So they actually brought in two engines. One of them they completely disassembled and did 3D scans on. And then the engine that we received, they took the gas generator off of it and actually did test fires of it in 2013 uh, in order to help bring these new engineers up to speed on, on how they used to do it in the good old days. <laughs> the, the past teaching yep. the future. Yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. Amazing stuff. And, you know, I, I did a story uh, with Rachel Tillman, mm -hmm. who was doing the Viking History Project, and uh, she was talking about how uh, she and her father recovered the uh, Viking lander that's here. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, it was, they were scheduled to scrap it. I said, no, don't do that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that lander is, is the anchor artifact for our post-Apollo 1970s section and, and talking about the, the transition from human exploration to the, the grand tour and a lot of the, the robotic uh, uh, planetary uh, achievements that really hit their heyday in the 1970s. Obviously, a lot of that planning was taking place you know, while Apollo was simultaneously going on, but they got, they got their spotlight in the 1970s. I think she's got her own mini-museum going in her garage, yeah, too, yeah. down there. It's pretty interesting. Well, gosh, less than a month now till it officially opens. Uh, I imagine there's a lot of last-minute details that folks are working on to make that happen. Yeah, we're, we're full-on in production mode uh, over there, and it's, you know, it's really interesting how once you start actually cutting metal and mudding walls, how, you know, the, the odd questions that come up. I spent a lot of my day yesterday trying to figure out whether I could find good images of how astronauts got out of the lunar rover because our design build team uh, was started asking, okay, so where do you want 
the, the footprints on the moonscape next to the rover display. And we want to make sure we get this accurate. And, and so I was going through uh, NASA video and NASA image archives trying to find good, either good still images of a, you know, the immediately next to a rover where you could see footprints or uh, you know, even trying to find video, which I wasn't able to find, of astronauts climbing out of a rover. You know, there's a lot of them driving, a lot of them working around the rovers, but there's no simple ingress or egress study, uh, at least easily available online, of astronauts climbing into or, or out of the rover to see, you know, did they hop out? Did they stagger when they were under the weight of their packs when they were trying to climb out? Uh, ejector seat. Right, man. ejector seat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did they just fall on their face? What happened? Nunn says the Apollo exhibit will be fabulous, but it won't be the end of the story. This exhibit that we're opening on May 20th is the first act in uh, a real interesting couple of years coming up, and it's actually building to a sort of main event that's going to happen in 2019. Uh, so I mentioned that the Smithsonian is going through this same uh, shifting of their space exhibitry, and their challenge, though, is that their gallery is not going to be done until, I think, 2020 or 2021. So in the meantime, they have to figure out what to do with all of the Apollo 11 artifacts, the original command module, Neil Armstrong's spacesuit, and they have created a traveling exhibit called Destination Moon. Well, Destination Moon is going to be here at the Museum of Flight over the summer of 2019. So on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, July 20th, 2019, you can see Neil Armstrong's spacesuit, the Apollo 11 command module Columbia, here at the Museum of Flight. And Sounds like a good reason for a party. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I imagine so. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm sure we will be, we're in the early stages of developing uh, uh, details about what's we're trying to get through, you know, our our exhibit for this year, and then uh, and then we'll be able to, to shift focus on onto uh, that traveling exhibit. It sounds really cool. Too. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And and then of course, once that exhibit leaves uh, in the fall of 2019, we'll be able to shift right back to uh, the exhibit that we have on display coming up this May. We've been talking with Jeff Nunn, adjunct curator for space history at the Museum of Flight. The museum's Apollo exhibit opens Saturday, May 20th, 2017. If you're a member of the museum, you can be among the first to see the exhibit at an after-hours preview on May 17th. And that sounds like a good reason to join. The museum will also be holding its Space Fest on the weekend of May 20th and 21st. The theme of the fest will be the Lunar Legacy, and the weekend will include lots of family activities, tours, presentations, and discussions. You can learn about the Apollo exhibit and Space Fest at museumofflight.org, and we'll be covering it on seattleastronomy.com as well. That's it for this episode of the Seattle Astronomy Podcast. Keep up with day-to-day -day news on our blog, find astronomy events on our calendar, and check out our store for recommendations for astronomy books, gear, software, and gadgets. It's all at seattleastronomy.com. The Seattle Astronomy Podcast is copyright 2017 by Seattle Astronomy. Our theme music is Aboard the Alien Craft from the album Symphony for Spaceman by Steve Combs and Delta Is. It's on freemusicarchive.org and is used under a Creative Commons attribution license. I'm Greg Scheiderer, wishing you clear skies. Thanks for listening.